Good morning, everyone. Did I get that turned on all right? Looks like it. Can you hear me all right? Okay, this morning we're going to pick up right where we left off last Sunday. And if you weren't here, we were looking, uh, continuing our journey into Romans. And we're going to be, over time, looking at the first eight chapters. Uh, last week, we were, began looking at chapter 6. Now today, we're going to start in verse 12, but it starts with a therefore. So we're going to do a really quick re uh, review so we know what it's there for. And so as we go down through this, then we see, we, we looked at, at how, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6 fits in. After all, up to this point, Paul has been talking about salvation by faith. And he, we go through those first five chapters, and he's talking about salvation by faith. He gives a demonstration of it through Abraham. He talks about the, the results of justification and the power that Christ had over that great sin from Adam on, on up. And then we get to chapter 6, and you go, well, what is this here for? How does it fit? And so Paul then starts addressing uh, the situation where people in the church there in Rome were saying, or he says slanderously saying that he was teaching that let's do good, or let's do evil that good may come. In other words, let's continue to sin. If grace is so great and grace can cover sin, then the more we sin, the more grace we get, so let's just continue to sin so that we can get more grace. And that's what he is dealing with in this chapter, and it's also going to continue. It's going to take a little bit of a different uh, path, but he's also going to continue that in chapter 7. But here in chapter 6, he's dealing with this false doctrine. And we said last week that this particular way of thought is still prevalent today, very, very prevalent in the religious world out there. Now, some weeks ago, Brian uh, spoke for a little bit about folks that on one side over here don't understand, the Christians that have a hard time understanding about God's grace. And so they, they have a hard time understanding that, yes, they are forgiven, and they live a life of stress and anxiety because of their sin, and have not really forgiven themselves of it. And so they don't understand what God has done for them. And that should not be. Over here in chapter 6, we have just the opposite like we've just described. There's people that will say, we're not under law, which we'll get to in a few verses. We're under grace, so I can do whatever I want. And they do. And they don't worry one bit about it. They're just as happy as they can be, even though Paul said in uh, chapter 3, those that believe that, that teach that, and practice that, their condemnation is just. So that's what he is talking about. And as we go through the first, went through the first 11 verses of chapter 6, we see that Paul begins to approach it very logically. Uh, and we ask the question, how many dead people do you see walking around Skagit Valley? Well, you don't see any. It's an impossibility. Logically, it can't happen. And so he springs bo springboards from that and begins logically showing them that that particular train of thought, that belief, really is not logical. It can't be if you have gone through the process that Christ went through, which was dying, being buried, and raising up again to newness of life. We do the same thing. And so it changes the relationship we have, not just to sin, but to God. Now, 
uh, when we get down to verse 10 and 11, Paul is wrapping that part of it up. He says in verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Uh, let's stop right there. We'll just take these in chunks. So verses 12, 13, and 14. Uh, let me ask a question. Uh, is lust a bad thing in and of itself? You know, we've, we've talked about this many times before. In and of itself, it's not. So what's Paul talking about here? He answers that in 13. If it was not for lust, which is really just, we always have a bad connotation when we hear lust. But really, God gave us those things to protect us. So if you don't have a lust for food when you get hungry, you're going to starve to death, right? So is that a bad lust? Or is that something that's bad? No, it's not. That strong desire for food, and if, if you hear a roaring lion, that's because my stomach is starting to tell me, because I haven't eaten anything this morning, uh, hey, it's time to take care of this thing. So if you hear that, my apologies. <laughs> Uh, but that's not a bad thing, is it, to lust after food? Our bodies are we're built for that. We're hardwired for that. So we're hardwired for a lot of different lusts. Uh, and Paul says, do not obey them, verse 13, and go on presenting. And this is how it's done. Remember, we talked about the, the body of sin that we put away. And how much of our bodies do we use to commit sin? The entire thing, don't we, from head to toe, inside and out. So he says in verse 13, do not Go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, if I lust after food and I go in and I steal it, then I have used that lust in an unrighteous way to commit sin. So you can do it, uh, you can lust in a, in a proper way or in an improper way. But Paul says, don't do it in the improper way here. Don't present or stop, don't go on presenting the members of your body, that's that old body of sin, as instruments of unrighteousness. I wanted to talk for a minute about this idea of presenting. Did you know that every single day when you wake up, when we wake up, we present ourselves? We either present ourselves as instruments of unrighteousness or we present ourselves to God, one or the other. That idea of presenting, there's actually a lot of little uh, definitions that go with it. I plucked out about three, three here that, that fit very well. To present means to yield here, to dedicate. And this was, this was one of my favorites, stand ready. So. We get up every day and we present ourselves. Well, what are we presenting ourselves to? Paul said, stop, you Romans, stop presenting your, your instruments. Uh, stop presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. That's what they were doing. They would get up every day. And as they went through their lives, they were presenting themselves to sin. Paul says, don't do that. If you've gone through that process we talked about in the first few verses, don't do that. Don't continue to present yourself to sin that way. Present yourself to God and use those instruments for righteousness. And then in verse 14, we'll, we'll park on that one for a, for a few minutes. 
he says, he asks, uh, and he's going to ask a question to follow that up in verse 15. He says, for sin, in verse 14, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. That's a very interesting statement that he makes there. First of all, uh, we talked about the word master a little bit last week, I think, that it has the, the idea of dominion. You have dominion. Uh, at work in my shop, I have dominion. I am a master over my crew. They're a very young crew. Some of them have been at Boeing for a few years, but they haven't done this particular type job. And so I am master over them. Not that I you know, beat them up or anything, but uh, when they have a problem with a machine or what they're doing or, or can't seem to get it, they come to me and I will help them. I'm training them. I'm training five guys right now. I'm going to get three more here pretty soon. And so I have dominion over them. They will come up and ask, <clears throat> um, can I go make a phone call? I got to call my wife. I don't care. Go make it. But they will ask me that. They, they want to make sure that I don't have a problem with it, which I usually don't. And I'm not even a manager. Uh, but I, 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 uh, I have master over them in that I have somewhat, of, not authority, but some dominion over them in this regard until they get up to speed until they can make some of those decisions on their own, until they can learn the prints that they need to learn and apply that knowledge on their own. It's the same way with sin, and we talked about Cain. God told Cain, you must master it, sin. And that's what Paul is saying here, very similar thing. For sin shall not be master over you. And then he says, for you are not under law, but under grace. And I think Paul is doing something here it's quite interesting. I don't know if he does it uh, deliberately in this way, but I can imagine that some of those Christians there would be going, yeah, see, that's what I've been talking about. Paul says we're not under law, but under grace. That's what I've been saying. They would probably agree with that statement if we just left it there. You are not under law, and you hear that a lot today. People that uh, want to do what they want to do, they will say those very words. They'll jump sometimes if you talk to them, they'll jump right to this verse. Say, see, <clears throat> I'm under law, I'm not under grace. And they'll, they'll say, therefore, I can, you know, I'm good. But what's he saying here? I want us to take a look at this a little bit further because, <clears throat> first of all, if you, if you want to, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I want to show you what I believe is happening here, what Paul is doing. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, turn to verse 10. Uh, we're not going to look at the context in any way, but the kind of the structure of the way it's said. I think what Paul is doing here is the same thing he does here and Jesus does in John 12, 44. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says in verse 10, but to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. Well, is Paul giving instructions or isn't he? It's called an ellipsis. It's what's known as an ellipsis. And all that means is, is it, it's understood in any language that's ever been, is now, and will be. We just leave words out. And we understand those words. Austin called last Wednesday, 7.30. How dare he call that early? He called up and he said, we are going to the Woodland Park Zoo today. Want to go? What did he leave out? He was talking to Laura. 
He, he left out, do you want to go with us? See, we, we automatically understand those words. We do that all the time. And so here at 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, uh, oops, I lost it already. Paul says, I give instructions, not I only, but also the Lord. You see, leaves those out, but that's understood. He's giving instructions as well as the Lord. In, in uh, John 12, 44, let me see if I can just, well, I better not even try and quote it because I'll probably bugger it up. In uh, John 12, 44, uh, another example of this, <clears throat> verse 44, and Jesus cried out and said, he who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. Now, is Jesus saying that those that believe in me don't believe in me? That's not what he's saying, is he? He leaves out a couple of words. Those who, those who, he who believes in me does not believe in me only, but also in him who sent me. He left those words out. The people understood what he was saying there, and I think that's what's happening in Romans chapter 6. So let's get to back to chapter 6, verse 14. <clears throat> for sin, verse 14, shall not be master over you, for you are not under law only, but also under grace. You see how he does that? He says, wait a minute, you are under law, and you are under grace. And let's talk about that for a minute. Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. And so there's that term, may it never be. And so, as we look at this, then, Paul uses what's known as an ellipsis and tells them, you don't have the right to claim you don't live under law, because you do, but that's not the only thing you live under. Now, he's not talking about the old law. You live under grace also. And so, as we look at this, you look back at chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. Paul says that very same thing in chapter 3. Uh, verse 28, he says that we maintain uh, that a man, excuse me, back up one. Verse 27 of chapter 3, where then is the boasting uh, living on the basis of law keeping? Where then is the boasting? It is excluded, but by what kind of law? Of works only? No, but by a law of faith. So right there in chapter 3, as Paul develops that doctrine of salvation by faith, he is not excluding the keeping of law, but he's not talking about uh, basing your salvation through law keeping. And so he says over here, he tells them, you're not just only under law, you are also under grace. And so as we go through this then, we can see that there are components that God has taken and he's put them together so that they work together. So, and we talked about this some months ago, that faith alone does not work, does it? Faith alone doesn't work. Neither does keeping law alone. Now, we oftentimes refer to that as works. So, faith by itself doesn't work, won't get you to heaven, won't get you justified before God. Law alone will not get you justified before God, but you still have to keep it just like you still have to have faith. Grace alone 
will not get you to heaven, and that's what he's trying to get them to see. You can't leave all those things out. And so we can see how they all work together. Now, I think when we get to chapter 8 and Paul says, for God can work all things together for good, he might be referring to this type of a situation. We'll talk about that down the road. But he works all of these things together. We have faith. We have an active faith, not a dead faith. That faith uh, motivates us to seek out God's righteousness and not present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. Yet we can't do it in that way alone. God has provided his grace through Jesus Christ by shedding his blood. And when we go through that process, he explained in the first part of the chapter, where we die, we are buried in the waters of baptism and resurrected just like Christ did, then we too will walk in newness of life. So you see how all that can fit together. So he says, so are we going to continue to, to live this way? Are we going to continue to sin? And he's, he's said this before. He says it again. May it never be. We talked about what that means. So in 16, he asked them a question like he did before. Uh, do you not know, are you ignorant of this, that when you present yourselves, so now he's going to introduce something, again, using some logic here, uh, to try and show them the error of their thinking. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? So here he uh, begins to introduce the idea of slaves or servants, being a servant. Now, this is something that they in, in Rome in that day would be very, very familiar with because back in those days, the, the Roman Empire was a very, very powerful nation that God had uh, brought up and it probably one of the most greatest powerful nations the earth has ever seen. Uh, and what they would do, you know, the Romans were very efficient and they were very good at, at, at taking other countries. Those Roman soldiers knew what they were doing. It's even said that uh, Sir William Wallace had gone to Rome for a couple of years to learn uh, warfare tactics from the Romans and that's why he was so successful uh, uh, over there in Scotland. But uh, the Romans, what they would do is when they would capture another country, they would take the leaders, the politicians, the kings, what have you, and then they would take a, a whole bunch of prisoners and they would march them all into Rome in shame and in defeat. And what they would do is they would take the leaders and they would usually just execute them publicly to show their slaves that you are defeated completely. Your leaders are gone. And so then they would take those people and some of them would go to the lions for food and some of them would be put on auction blocks and they were sold as servants or slaves. The slave population in Rome uh, shortly after the time of Christ got so great, I can't remember the number, I'm, so I'm not even going to guess, but the slave population in Rome was so great it far outnumbered the number of natural born citizens there in Rome. That's, and it became a problem later on. So they would understand this concept he is talking about. And as we're going to see, Paul has to really dumb down what he's saying for them because of their fleshly minds. He couldn't talk to them any other way. So he says, don't you know this? That when you present yourselves as a slave for obedience, 
You are slaves of the one that you obey. You see where he's starting to go? Which one are you going to obey? You're going to obey something. It's like I said, when we, wake up, when we wake up every day, we present ourselves to something or someone. What's it going to be? Verse 17, and, well, then there's the results there. He says, are you going to, uh, are you, you, uh, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, verse 16, either of sin, and remember he just got done saying, don't present yourselves to sin when you present yourself, but uh, which results in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. If you, if you present yourself to sin, it results in death. If you present yourself as an instrument of obedience, it was going to result in righteousness. Then, then verse 17. Um, he's going to continue on with this a bit, but in verse 17, he changes just a little bit. And he gives thanks for them. He's been scolding them to some point uh, with this at this point. And logically shows uh, that their argument really isn't very logical. What they were pursuing is not very logical. He says, but thanks be to God that, that though you were slaves of sin, and this is kind of interesting here in verse 17 through 21, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient to that which, uh, to, from the heart. I'm going to skip the one. You became obedient from the heart, and Paul knows this, and he's going to tell us how he knows it here in a minute. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now he's telling them that when they were baptized, when they went through that immersion, and they were raised again, you were committed from the heart to that form of teaching. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So they died to sin, they were once slaves to sin, and they gave that up and committed to that form of teaching, committed to that, and you became slaves of righteousness. So they quit presenting themselves to sin, and they started presenting themselves to God and to righteousness, and became slaves of that because they stopped obeying this and started obeying God over here. So you're slaves of the one you obey. It's not a hard principle, is it? It's not a hard concept. Now, I want to I talk for a minute about this word form. Uh, that, he puts, uh, that he uses here in verse 17, excuse me, verse 16. No, 17. He says, uh, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. See what that is? All you guys, most of you guys, the guys know it because they know there's goodies that usually get put in there. Right? In fact, Eldon, when he saw me walk up here with it, said, there's no cake in there. Can't help you there this morning, Eldon. I'm going to try not to knock that off of there. Let's suppose that I, I walk in the door at home and Laura is in the kitchen and she's been doing more more uh, baking, more healthy baking. She's really been getting into this. And I walk in, and she's there, got a dish, and she's stirring it, and she's standing right next to this thing. 
And she comes over and she starts to, to pour it in there. She starts pouring it in there. I walk up and I go, oh, sheet cake. <laughs> I would kind of expect Laura to go, what is the matter with you? Can't you tell this is not a sheet cake? Not even close. You see, when she puts something in this form or this mold, it's going to come out just like this. It's not going to come out a sheet cake. But that's the problem. Those Romans had gone into the mold, at least had committed to it. That's what that word form means. It's a mold. They had committed to it, but they didn't stay committed to it. I'm just going to put this right here. I just know I'm going to knock it off. <clears throat> That's what Paul was trying to show them. You, you formed yourself to that mold. When you went into that thing, you were just a raw, mixed-up mess. And when you went through that process, you went into that mold of Jesus Christ, and you came out looking just like him. That's, that's, that's what that word means. That's what he's talking about here. And then he says in verse, uh, oh, verse 18, when he says, having been freed from sin, that is a different word than what we looked at last week. Back, back in verse 7, when he uses that word freed, that meant, that particular word meant you are declared righteous. This one doesn't mean that. It just simply means you were freed from sin. You're no longer, no longer obligated. You're just not a slave of it. That's all that that word free there means for the rest of the way here. So if you were freed from sin, you have no obligation to obey that. <clears throat> and you became slaves of righteousness. So your obligation changed. And you willingly went through this, went through that mold, and you became willingly slaves of righteousness. And then in verse 19, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Uh, they, they were not able to understand what Paul was speaking about uh, because of the weakness of their flesh. He had to speak down to them in a very visual way because the sin that they had been committing uh, weakened their minds, weakened their hearts, and they couldn't handle it. So Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now, this is interesting, and it's very, very true what he says next. He says, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members to slaves, members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We'll talk about sanctification again when we get down to verse 22 as we start to close it out. Uh, what's interesting there is he says that when you were presenting yourselves, your, your members, your body, your hands, your mind, your eyes, your feet, when you were presenting your members as slaves to purity, that's what you were obeying as a slave, uh, to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in more lawlessness. Lawlessness does not breed purity, and it doesn't breed righteousness. 
In fact, it has, as Paul says here, just the opposite effect. When somebody starts getting involved in sin, what's the first thing they try and do when they realize it? Especially a Christian, if they're, if they're prone to this kind of thinking, perhaps. What's the first they try and hide it? Don't they? You ever known somebody that's got involved in sin and they try and hide it? They do it all the time. Well, guess what they just did? They just engaged in more lawlessness. And the harder they try to hide it, the harder they have to work to keep it hidden. And it just results in more lawlessness, more lawlessness. And pretty soon it gets pretty easy to do that. They start figuring out how to lie better. They start figuring out how to cover their tracks better. Uh, some people just don't care. And so lawlessness, when you're a slave to lawlessness, or when you present yourself in that way, it just results in more lawlessness. Young people that uh, have been at home, perhaps, and not experienced some of the, the evil things out there, they, they get out there and they, they get drawn in. And they get tempted by these things and they give in. And it's fun. It feels good. So what do you want to do? You want to do more of it. And so lawlessness breeds more lawlessness. And that's what has happened with these people, with these Christians in Rome. Paul says, no, you from the heart committed to that form of teaching from the beginning, so don't present your members uh, as, uh, to, as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which results in more, but rather uh, present them as slaves to righteousness, resulting in more righteousness. So it has the, the same effect, just in two different directions. The, the, the more righteous we try to be, and I don't mean it in an arrogant way, but uh, uh, from the heart, sincerely trying to know what the will of God is, per Ephesians chapter 4 or 5, I think, and trying to know what he wants us to do and directing our lives in that direction, it will, it will create greater righteousness. And just these things will be in the past, those sins that you've committed in the past that you still think about and feel guilty about, that will begin to disappear. And you don't have to live a life of guilt anymore because the grace of God combined with your faith and your obedience to his will, and make no mistake about it, First John talks about those that claim to know Christ but don't keep his commandments are liars. So... <clears throat> When you combine those things and work them together, God will work them to your benefit if you continue to practice them. Otherwise, you're just headed down the path of destruction, disobedience, and unrighteousness. So, in verse, uh, let's begin to, to close this out. I knew this wouldn't take very long today, but I didn't want to squeeze this in last week. It just would have gone too long. So, he's speaking in, pre in human terms in verse 19. He says, don't present yourself this way. You present yourself this way. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Now, that's exactly the opposite, uh, I believe, uh, from verse 18. He says, you have been freed from sin. You're no longer obligated to sin. Here he says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You had no obligation to righteousness because your master, what you obeyed, what you were a slave to was sin. 
So you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit, now this is, this is, this is a, a, a verse here that's very interesting as well. Therefore, uh, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? So go back to verse 17, and he said, from the heart, you uh, went into that mold, you were committed to that form of teaching, and Paul says here, before you did that, you were doing things you were ashamed of. Back then, you were ashamed of them. And what was the benefit of that back then? I think that's kind of a rhetorical question. He's already said over and over, it's death. And so you came to Christ with a pure heart, and now he says, what was the benefit of that back there? Now you're ashamed of those things. For the outcome of those things is death, he just tells them. From the heart they believed, they were ashamed of those things, and he says, what was your benefit then of the things that you are ashamed of, were ashamed of? He's contrasting the two sides. What's the benefit? Well, he says it's death in verse, at the end of 21. That's death. So now as he begins to bring this section to a close before he starts into chapter 7, as we have broken these up, he says, but now, now in the present, right now, you Romans, now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. Now, if you continue in that mold, before it was death. Now, he says, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. What a comparison. Would you rather live or would you rather die? You see how he goes through logically and shows it can't be. You can't follow this teaching. It is wrong. It is illogical. You've died to something, you can't continue in it. And the outcome of continuing to practice it is death. Do you want life or do you want death? He says uh, the result is uh, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. So he mentioned sanctification before. Let's talk about it for just a, a, a minute here before we close. Uh, the outcome is sanctification, and the, the benefit is sanctification, and the outcome is eternal life. What does the word sanctification mean? And oftentimes, we jump right out and say, set apart, and then we stop there. And that's right. It does mean set apart. In fact, I've heard others define it, set apart for holy use. What does holy mean? Set apart. But we stop right there. So let's peel back just a little bit further. He says <clears throat> the result of sanctification, if you're a slave to righteousness and present yourself that way to God, the outcome eternal life, sanctification does mean set apart. But it means set apart to something. It just doesn't mean set apart. It means set apart to something. How had they been setting themselves apart, Paul says? as a slave to whatever they obey, and that was unrighteousness. Paul says, no, here, when you continue in that mold, in that form to which you originally committed to, 
it results in sanctification. You're set apart to God. So we are sanctified to God. We're just not carved out over here and just sitting here. We are carved out and join the family of Christ and we are carved out to God for his use. Not to fulfill that of sin and unrighteousness. So that's what, that's what sanctification means. It's set apart and it's an old Hebrew, it comes from old, the old Hebrew and it has the idea of purification with it. That's what sanctification means. You're set apart, you're purified for service to God. Right? So when you see that, at least in this context, I believe that's what it means. So then we come to that big conclusion that I talked about last week at the very beginning that it, you know, we always make the word pictures of. And, uh, and that is verse 23 as he brings this to a close. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So <clears throat> Paul says here, there has been saying that sin is not free. It's not free. There is a cost. And there is a result. It's not free because if you are in sin, you're paying the cost. And you can choose to do that if you want. Scripture very clearly teaches you can choose to pay the cost of your sin. And Paul says it's death. And I believe that's eternal separation from God. That's what death means. Anytime there's death or dying, it means there's a separation. So what are we separating ourselves from if we want to pay for our own sin? We're separating ourselves from God. And if we physically die in that condition, we have paid our price, and we will pay it in eternity. Now, would you rather pay for something like that in eternity, or would you rather have somebody else do it? Well, God gives us that option. When you commit to the model of Jesus Christ of dying and being buried in baptism and rising a new, into a new life, that salvation that he offers is, is free. It's free to you and me. The free gift of God, Paul says, that means it doesn't cost you or me anything or these Roman brethren, but it does cost. There was a cost, and that cost was the life of Christ on the cross. There was a great cost, and there is a result. Paul says in, at the end of this, the result is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So he very simply goes through this very logically and shows that that form of teaching that you are saying that I teach is not true it really doesn't stand up to logic. Now, we could bring up 2 Peter, and I won't, I won't go over there, but in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 and 22, 21 and 22, the end of that chapter, it's interesting because Peter takes a little bit different uh, tack on this. Now, he's dealing in 2 Peter with, with false teachers. Now, Paul is very kind here, even though he's a little snarky once in a while, and a little bit... Uh, challenges their, their ignorance a little bit. Paul says, just don't do that anymore. This is what you committed to. And I know you committed to it from the heart because back then you were embarrassed about it. Peter just flat out says, 
when a, a, a member of the Lord's body turns his back on that, falls after these false teachers, he has very strong words to say about them. He gives a description of what that feels like to God there in 2 Peter. What it feels like is when you've cleaned up your, your sow or your, your pig, and as soon as you're done cleaning up, that pig goes right back into the fecal-infested, dirty, stinky, muddy mud. That's what it feels like to God. He still loves you. But that's what it feels like to do. And Peter just flat out says, that's what it's like. And even Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, he says, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or he will love the other. And that is a perfect fitting in to the discussion that Paul has here. You are following something that is not true. It does not fit in with the idea of salvation by grace. But what does fit into the idea of salvation by grace is that you understand that you are under obligation if you present yourselves as a vessel of obedience to God, you are ob obligated to him to live in that way. And it's not a bad obligation. But if you're not, you're obligated to the other master that you obey. And that's sin. That's what you become a slave to. Now, it, it, uh, it begs the question, and you can see we're coming to this, what will you choose, you Romans? What are you going to choose? Are you going to stick to that mold? Or are you going to choose to become a slave of your sin? It's really that simple. So we can ask the same question of us today. Are we going to choose life? Who doesn't want life? Or are you going to harden your heart? Say, no, I'll pay for my own sin. I can handle it. I, I just really think that's an awful, awful thing to, an awful, awful path to go down, especially for one that has come to, to Christ and committed themselves to Christ to, to, to think in this way. This, this doctrine is alive and well. Uh, it's not prevalent here in any way that I know of. But you go just about to any one of these other, of these, of these other religious groups, denominations if you want to call them that, and a lot of them will live by that idea right there. We're not under law. We're under grace. Yeah. I cheat on this, that, husband, wife, whatever. And they go through life just as joyful as they can be, ignorant of the fact that they are uh, getting ready if they, when they leave this earth in that condition that they're going to be paying for their own sin. They are going to pay for it, and it's an awful, awful cost. So what is the answer? What will you choose? Will you choose life, or will you choose death? Paul clearly shows here that the benefit is sanctification and the outcome is eternal life. So I want to close this particular chapter uh, and, and just say that it is really easy, isn't it, to get caught up in some sin and maybe for a while not even realize it. And it doesn't have to be some great big terrible thing that we would look at and but it is really easy to get caught up in that, isn't it? And to turn your allegiance to 
that, to protecting that. But that's not what grace is about. Grace is by faith giving yourself up to Christ in his mold, living according to his righteousness. That's the law we live under, the law of, 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 of faith in Christ. And relying on his grace, his favor, that free gift. That's what grace is. It's a free gift. And even, I think, in the original, trans, some of the old text, the word free in that verse isn't there. It just says the gift of God is eternal life. Well, any gift you get is free, isn't it? If I walk up to Rich on his birthday and say, here you go, Rich, here's a new Kubota. By the way, you owe me $20,000 and so many pence. What's, what's Rich probably going to do? That, that's no gift. Does he want the Kubota? Maybe. Maybe he'd rather have a John Deere. I don't know. But if I guarantee you, if I pulled up in front of his house and said, here's a $20,000 Kubota, it's yours, it's free, you don't owe me a cent. I'll bet you he would keep it for a little while. I'll bet you he'd have a little bit of fun on that thing because I know Rich, he likes tractors. He likes tractors almost as much as my grandson back there does. So if you have been caught up as a member of the Lord's body in sin and you realize it and you realize that you need to get rid of it and would like the help of the brethren, we can help you do that. If you have never gone through that mold and changed your life for Christ, the, the, the choice could not be more clear. You can harden your heart, turn it away, and you will pay for those sins eventually if you remain in that condition, or you can choose life. So the choice is yours. Let's stand as we sing together, please.